If you've been here for uh, just even a, a few weeks, you'll know that um, we're actually, we were in the middle of a series when we decided to move, really, and um, that series was called the 360-degree gospel, and what we were doing was we were looking at how the gospel impacts every area of life, and about a month ago, I spoke about the gospel and uh, diversity, and I, I recommended my book. Uh, to you. Um, we don't have any here, but hey, you can get them. Pauline's got some at home. So if, if, you, want, if you want a copy of the book, you can get it. Um, but, but we were looking at how the gospel impacts diversity in the church, and I took as my foundational passage on that particular Sunday, Ephesians 2, uh, verse 11 to 22, where, where, it, where it talks about this, almost this creation of one new man, uh, God bringing together the Jew and the Gentile, creating one new man, and in doing so, bringing peace. Something that was actually quite surprising because the very thing you don't get often when people from different backgrounds and cultures come together is peace. You normally get suspicion. You normally get a bit of hostility. There's normally some history. But what he did was to bring peace. And I said at the time that uh, the, the second half of that talk was going to be a, a talk about the gospel and culture. And um, I, I don't know what you think of when, when I say the word culture, but I'm not, I'm not really, I'm not, I'm not very clever, so I'm not going to talk about, you know, I'm not going to make lots of insights into our culture because I don't, I don't necessarily understand our culture, but I am going to be looking at um, Christian culture and a little bit at Jewish culture and how those things sort of relate it and how they relate to us today because the gospel... So, so, so the belief is this, the gospel impacts every single area of life. You don't, just, you don't just come to the gospel to get saved. You don't just hear about Jesus and respond to him and say, hallelujah, I'm a Christian now, and that's it. The gospel is more than about salvation. It's also the very means by which you are sanctified, that you, are, uh, that you go on in your faith, that you grow in your faith. It's through the gospel. There's not another book. There's not another message. It's not like, well, you've got the gospel which saves you and then there are these other things that help you get going in the Christian faith. No, it's the gospel um, that does that. And so, and so looking at the gospel and seeing how it impacts every area of life. A couple of weeks ago, we had Gavin Peacock and he talked about the gospel and suffering. And, and I've just got to say, I thought it was probably one of the best talks I'd ever heard on suffering because, because it wasn't a defense of the gospel in, um, in, in some ways, neither was it just a personal testimony, but it was a really strong biblical pastoral approach to suffering that I, th I think would really serve us. So this week we're looking at the gospel and culture, and uh, the passage of scripture I'm going to read is from Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. So let me just read these few verses. I'm sorry I don't have a PowerPoint. Um, so if you have a Bible, it's Galatians 2, verse 11. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw 
They, they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. I said to Peter in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Let's pray. Father, we are uh, so grateful to you because uh, you really are the leader of this church. You really are the one who guides us and we, we look into, into the history of the church and the history of your people and we see how you have moved and, and, and worked in people's lives and you've opened doors and you've closed them. You've led your people in the way that you have wanted to and Father, it is our desire that this church is led like that, that, that you're at the centre, that we don't have a, a programme in the background that we're trying to follow. We're trying to follow you, Lord. So would you guide us and lead us, and this morning would you speak to us by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So just like two weeks ago, I said um, the gospel and diversity, one of the key passages was that of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 to 22. I actually think, and it might not make sense at the moment, that Galatians 2, 11 to 14 is one of the key passages when it comes to understanding culture and the mission of the church. It's massive. Now you at the moment might not think that. I'm hoping that by the end of this morning you'll understand why I think that. It's a really important passage for how the church was going to move forward as a community, was this particular um, event. And so uh, the way I'm going to do it is, is, I've read you the passage, but actually we're going to look at a number of other passages in order that we understand the context in which this was said and why this is so important for the, why it was so important for the early church and also why is it so important for the church today because it is very important for the church today. So I want to ask the question, what was Jewish culture like? So, so this is written, this passage, this book of Galatians is written to a number of churches. Um, at this point, the church has expanded beyond just the Jews. It had come out of just Jerusalem and it's now beginning to hit other places, and that's really where they hit the problems. Until then, the only problems they had were they were persecuted. Now, I'm not saying that's great, but they didn't have so many of the internal problems that then began to exist when they moved out beyond Judaism. So what was the Jewish culture like? In the first century, Jewish culture was still tied very much to, if you like, the Old Testament the Levitical code. It was, still, it was still very much like that. Although there were, there were 2,000 years from the time that, that Moses had written like the, the Pentateuch and things like that, it was still very, very similar. Yeah, more similar than even our culture of the last 40 years. If you think about how our cultures changed over 40 years, their culture was more similar 2,000 years later than our culture is to what it was 40 years ago. So they were very tied to their culture. And it was, it, it was because the culture was designed to do three things. It was designed to be preserved. That was a key part of the culture. If you read the Old Testament, a lot of it is about remember. Remember this. Yeah? Oh, I've given you these, uh, th these days of worship that you might remember what I did. So God was always reminding them to remember who he was, what he had done. That's why they had various holy days, various days of celebrations, various days of feasting. It was in order that they would remember. That was really important to, to preserve who they were. Secondly, it was to keep them 
exclusive. Yeah, their whole culture was designed to keep them exclusive, that they weren't to mix with others, that they were to be the people of God, which is why they have, you, you go to Leviticus 17 or 16 or 17, I've been reading it this week, and you see the food laws. You know, you can eat, you can eat the animals that have the cloven hoof halfway. And you can't eat the animals that have the cloven hoof. The whole, it was really, really specific. You can't, eat, you can't eat fish like this, but you can eat them like that. It was very, very specific. Now, can you imagine if you had a friend today who was an Orthodox Jew and you invited them round to dinner? Yeah? And now, when, when we get invited round to dinner occasionally, I have to send people a text to explain what Pauline does and doesn't eat. Yeah? And she's got, it's not like there are any religious beliefs behind her eating. It's just, it's just the way Pauline is. But, um, but I, have to, I have to tell people, oh, she doesn't eat this and she doesn't eat that. And I know after a while some people are thinking, why did we ask them around? <laughs> because they, we don't have anything in our cupboard that she's going to eat. Now, you want to imagine if you had an Orthodox Jewish friend and you got to know them and you wanted to invite them around to dinner and they would say, well, well before we come, why don't you just read through Leviticus? And then you'll understand some of the things that we eat and some of the things that we don't eat. That's what you'd have to do. Now, in the end, you'd never invite them around because you couldn't live like that, which meant that the Jews, simply by their food laws, were separate. They were separated. They were distinct. They were unique. And, the, and their culture was designed to keep them that way. It wasn't like they were trying to be different. They were designed to be kept separate. And then thirdly... Jewish culture was designed to keep them set apart for God. Set apart for God, which is why every male Jew was circumcised. It was a covenant between them and God that they belonged to him. Yeah? So they were completely separate. So the Jews of the Old Testament, they didn't mix. Other cultures mixed. The Jews, as a people, didn't really mix. And come the first part of the... Of the uh, the early church, the first century, um, they were very similar. It wasn't like they hadn't changed very much. They hadn't just moved with the times. Everything was designed to keep them apart. And the two main ones were the food laws and circumcision. Those two things were designed to keep them apart. There were so many restrictions that you could not have mixed with them easily. In Leviticus chapter 11, it says this. At the end, it's just gone through a whole load of food laws, and then it says this. These are the regulations concerning animals, birds, every living thing that moves in the water, and every creature that moves about on the ground. You must distinguish between the unclean and the clean, between living creatures that may be eaten and those that may not be eaten. So in the New Testament, this applied as much as it did to Moses. Then with circumcision, this idea that they were set apart, this distinguishing mark of the people of God, that, that it, it was the sign that God was with them. In Genesis 17, it says this. God says this. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. There is no way that you would undergo circumcision if God hadn't spoken about it. Yeah? You just wouldn't. Yeah? You wouldn't say, but, but Mama, I don't, I, I don't need to be. Oh, no, God said. Oh, okay. God said. So they were circumcised. You wouldn't do it otherwise. There's no natural motivation 
for it. By the first century, as I said, these laws were ingrained in the culture. Now, there were hundreds of other laws that they had also adopted and adapted, but these laws were still part of the culture, and it's important to know they didn't stop when Jesus came. Yeah, all these laws didn't stop at the point that Jesus came. One of the reasons the Jews failed to recognise Jesus was he didn't seem to fit in with the culture. Yeah? The Bible says, and they knew this, the Bible says, cursed is a man who hangs on a tree. Now, because it said that, the Jews, many Jews couldn't believe Jesus was the Son of God because he died on a tree. How can he be the Son of God? He died on a tree. Cursed is a man who dies on a tree. Now, actually, one of the things that Jesus was doing to the Jews was explaining, even from their own culture, from their own words, from the prophets of old, how he came to be. But they didn't see that. A lot of them didn't see it, and they didn't accept him. And then even his disciples. The change wasn't as quick as you might imagine. When Peter goes to meet Cornelius after having a vision to go and speak to this man. You know, he sees a, he, this vision is of, a, is, is of a, a big tablecloth with all sorts of animals. And in the vision, he's told, uh, kill and eat. And he says, I can't do that. I've never eaten anything unclean in my life. When he visits Cornelius, the first words that he says to Cornelius, who is not a Jew, he says this, you are well aware that it's against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or to visit him. So he's aware of it. He lives by it. He, he, the Pentecost has gone. Acts 2, the Acts 2 church has started, and yet this is what he says. You're well aware we are not meant to associate with you. So this guy is a Christian, and that's what he says. Then when he's criticised a few verses later at the beginning of Acts 11, it says when Peter went up to Jerusalem, he's explaining what happened when he met Cornelius, the circumcised believers, so they are believers, but they're circumcised, criticised him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. How dare you do that? How dare you go into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them? Peter explains why he did it and they accept it. So Jewish culture, and this is really important to know, was in the church. It wasn't outside. It wasn't that they had become believers and suddenly all of that had disappeared and now they just believe their own thing. It was in the church right at the heart of the church, because Peter was, if you like, the head of the church at that point. Becoming a believer, a disciple, whatever term you use, did not mean that suddenly Jewish culture disappeared. It was designed to keep you separate. As long as all the believers were Jewish, it was never going to be a problem. If, everyone is, if everyone's a Jew, then it doesn't matter if we're keeping all the food laws, because we're not keeping anyone out. As long as everyone who's saved is a Jew, it doesn't matter. The real problem came was when the church began to move beyond its own borders. So that's the Jewish culture. What was the Christian culture like? What was the Christian culture like? Even though they may not have realised this, what was the culture like that Jesus had instituted and was going to come through? The Christian culture was different, even if they hadn't realised it. Firstly... Instead of aiming for preservation, i.e. we're here to preserve ourselves, it was intentionally missional. 
Yeah? Jewish culture was not intentionally missional. There were a few people who joined who were God-fearers, but it wasn't intentionally missional in the way that the Christian culture was. Why did the Christian culture become missional? Because Jesus said in Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now I wonder what they thought when they heard that because they didn't think that meant they were going to go anywhere. I wonder what they thought. But the Christian culture was intentionally missional. Secondly, the Christian culture was designed to be inclusive of non-Jews. It was designed that way. Your acceptance as a believer was no longer about certain practices or the race that you were born into or, or that you adhered to certain things, but it was about faith in Christ. Suddenly it was very, very different. It was designed to be inclusive. It wasn't designed to be uh, exclusive of other people. It was inclusive in the sense that anybody could respond to Jesus, but it was, it was exclusive in that Jesus was the only way. And then it says, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. This is Galatians 3.26. For all of you who were baptised into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor free, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So Paul is outlining that it's through faith in Christ that you now come to believe. It's not through anything else. All of that was to set the scene for this encounter that we have in Antioch. This critical moment for the first century church, and I think it's becoming a critical moment for the 21st century church as well. So why was Antioch so important? Why was it important? It says in Acts 11, now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen travelled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. So why is Antioch important? It's the first place in the whole of the known world at the time that people intentionally took the message beyond the Jew. When Peter spoke to Cornelius, it was through visions and dreams that it happened. It wasn't that he had decided to do it. This was the first place that they decided, that they intentionally crossed over, if you like. They intentionally made a decision, oh, we're going to bring this message to the non-Jew. And these are nameless, faceless disciples. Secondly, it's the first place where they received the label Christian or Christ follower. Why? Why were they called Christians in Antioch? Why weren't they just called Jewish believers of some sort? Well, I, I wonder. It's, it's, really, it's actually not clear why, but I wonder whether one of the reasons might be that the church in Antioch could not be called Jewish. They were both Jewish and Gentile believers together. So the label Jewish did not, did not do it anymore. It wasn't enough for them. People couldn't describe them as Jews because they weren't all Jews. And then thirdly, it was so important because it became the first and central point of the mission of the church. You see, the church in Jerusalem, uh, it was together and it, and it loved, when I say it loved itself, I don't mean that in a sort of wrong way, they loved themselves, but it was all together in one place, but it didn't actually take on the mission. 
The church in Jerusalem hung around together and the only reason they ever moved on from that was when persecution came in Acts 8. It's the only reason. They didn't, they didn't intentionally go, we've got to get out and we've got to tell people about Jesus. They actually lived together, loved together. They were all together in one place. Then in Acts 8, a great persecution comes and the church is scattered. So actually it's the persecution that scattered them and they went to Antioch, but it was in Antioch that they set apart Paul and Barnabas for the work that they were to be called to, and they, had to, they went. So Antioch was the place of mission, the first mission. You see, the Jewish believers had no problem with their laws and their regulations until they met Gentile converts. There was no problem with it. They just, they just used to do it. It was only when they met Gentile converts who were not circumcised, who weren't obeying the food laws, who weren't doing all the laws and regulations, that a problem occurred. And that's a really interesting thing for diversity, that if you are really going to build a genuinely diverse church, you cannot do it just through intention. If you're all the same, then do you know what? There are things that you're missing that you don't realise you're missing. Because you don't realise that things can be different until someone else comes in who isn't like you. And so the complete, so in that way, Antioch was a more complete church than Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a Jewish church. The only way you could join the Jerusalem church was probably if you became Jew and you started to adhere to all their rules. In Antioch, it wasn't like that. And then you find in this passage the most practical outworking of the Christian faith as a means to bring the Jew and the Gentile together. There's the theology that we talked about a few weeks ago in Ephesians, but the most practical outworking of the Christian faith as a means to bringing people together was the table. It was, it was the place of fellowship. Yeah, they would come together for worship, but it was the table. It was the place where, where Peter had obviously come to Antioch and he had enjoyed table fellowship among the Jews and the Gentiles, not held back by ceremonial laws and rules. He had come to a place of fellowship, to the table. And it was almost that was the place. That was the place where of all the things that God had done, you could see it outworked in that moment. Oh, wow, they're all around the table together. That is remarkable that Jews brought up with a 2,000-year history, believing everything that they, had, that they had been brought up with, are now around the table with Gentiles. How on earth does that happen? What makes that possible? Well, it was the cross. It was the cross that made it possible. It was the table that was the outworking of it. And it was the table at which Peter makes his, if you like, his mistake. It's the table which becomes the source of tension between Peter and Paul. There is no other place in the scripture where Paul says, I confronted him to his face in front of everyone. So it wasn't a common thing for him to do, but he did it here. He did it here because he could not afford for Antioch to end up like Jerusalem. Because if Antioch ended up like Jerusalem, the mission of the church was going to go off somewhere. Imagine if, if they set Paul and Barnabas aside in Antioch to send them and they were just taking a Jewish gospel. They went to Ephesus, they went to all sorts of places. Imagine going to those places and simply talking about ceremonial laws and food laws and, and circumcision. They just wouldn't, the gospel wouldn't go anywhere. 
So the argument, the battle, had to be won at the most central key church in the first century, and it was in Antioch. So table fellowship. Table fellowship was the practice of the early church. Yeah? Where they would come together, they would eat together, they would fellowship together, and it was actually a sign of what Jesus had done. Every time a Jew and a Gentile sat across a table and they ate together, it was a sign of what Jesus had done. Every time they did that. Because that was the only reason they could sit together. Because of what Jesus had done. Because he had abolished all the laws. He had abolished the written code and he had brought through faith in Christ a means by which people who never ever grew up as Jews or believed in that sort of thing could come to fellowship. The outworking of Ephesians 2, 11 to 22 is Galatians 2, 11 to 14. It was the table. He brought peace. You know, you don't, the table's not a place of conflict. Yeah? Or not for very long. Yeah? If you're... If you have arguments over your table, let's say it's indicators of other things, you're having arguments over your table, it's not going to be very long before that stops. You don't eat with your enemies. Certainly not every day. You eat with your friends. You eat with those that you love. You eat with those that you belong to. You don't sit at the table every day and you're forced to eat you know, with, with somebody. When I sit opposite Pauline, it's not that I'm not forced. She might feel that. I'm, I'm not particularly feeling that. But at the table is a key part, even more than the small group. So we often talk about small groups, but to be honest, you know what the church has done over the years? It's institutionalised small groups. So we're now like backing off them a bit because they're like, oh, they've become institutional and when you go to a group, you've got the four W's, you've got this, you've got that, you've got the other. Whereas the table, even more than the small group, was a place of fellowship, sharing, hospitality, friendship, and the only reason you could do it was because of the cross. So every time you do it, you're saying something about what Jesus achieved. So then we get to this passage. All of that just takes us to this point where Paul confronts Peter. And I just want to uh, reread it, but from the Amplified Version of the Bible which just adds a little bit more uh, sort of emphasis on certain things. And this is what it says in the Amplified Version. But when Cephas, that is Peter, came to Antioch, I protested and opposed him to his face concerning his conduct there, for he was blamable and stood condemned. For up to the time that certain persons came from James, he ate his meals with the Gentile converts, But when the men from Jerusalem arrived, he withdrew and held himself aloof from the Gentiles and ate separately for fear of those of the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews, along with him, also concealed their true convictions and acted insincerely, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy, their example of insincerity and pretense. But as soon as I saw that they were not straightforward and were not living up to the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, Peter, before everybody present, if you, though born a Jew, can live as you have been living, like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how do you dare now to urge and practically force the Gentiles to comply with the ritual of Judaism and live like Jews? 
So just a couple of things quickly from that passage. First of all is this, that in verse 11 where it talks about Peter opposing, Paul opposing him, this is not an issue of opinion. Paul is not saying, in my opinion, Peter, that's wrong. Now he's saying, what you're doing is not in accordance with the gospel. This is, this is truth, not opinion. It's very easy in our culture to turn everything that is truthful into an opinion. Well, that's just your view. No, no, no. Some things are right and some things are wrong. And that's the point that he's making here. There are some things that are right and there are some things that are wrong. Secondly, Peter's response comes out of fear, not faith. So Peter responds out of fear of some other people. How often do we do that? Let's be honest with ourselves. How often do you operate in a way because you're worried about what other people think? And sometimes you'll operate in a way which is not true to your own convictions because you're worried about other people. That's exactly what Peter was doing. It wasn't that, he'd, it wasn't that he had suddenly changed his mind and suddenly thought that, that it was okay to withdraw. I don't think he thought that at all. I think he was scared. He was frightened. He was afraid of what these people might think, this really influential group who named themselves the circumcision. He was frightened of what they might think, and therefore he acted in a way that was not consistent with what he really thought. Thirdly, peer pressure. It's the other thing that comes out, and you, you get with Barnabas. Barnabas, remember, is more or less the pastor of that church in Antioch. He responds in the same way. Why? Because of pressure from others. Peter acts. All the other Jews act, so Barnabas feels compelled to be pulled along with them. These are real things that we, that we go through. And fourthly, he hadn't thought, Peter hadn't thought through the consequences of his actions. By acting in that way, he's not just withdrawing in terms of, because you could subtly withdraw, Oh, I just won't arrive at the same time. I'll just, we'll just eat before we go. You can do all sorts of things to subtly withdraw, but what he was doing was completely inconsistent with what he believed. The theology of it was the table fellowship represents something that Jesus did. The moment you withdraw from that, you are devaluing what he did. You're devaluing the power of the cross to bring people together. The moment you withdraw, the moment you decide, I'm not going to engage with that, you actually devalue it. And so that's what Paul is getting at. That's why Paul confronted him. It was on three levels this confrontation occurred. It was personal. Peter's actions, as I said, they were wrong and they came out of fear. He didn't withdraw because he disagreed with what was going on. He withdrew because he was afraid. It's interesting, in Acts 11, when he's criticised, Peter defends himself. He explains his actions. When he's criticised in Galatians 2, he's silent. Now, I don't want to read too much into the silence, but he is silent on his response. Secondly, there was a theological one in which this whole thing developed. Peter didn't agree with what necessarily he'd done, but he hadn't thought through the implications of taking that stance. And so you do have to think through the implications of things that you do. And particularly in the world in which we live today, which is running away from Christianity. Yeah? 50 years ago, it was easier to live as a Christian here because everyone believed in marriage. Yeah, everyone believes certain things. Now that they don't believe certain things, the pressure upon the Christian to accept things that they don't agree with, to, 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 start, to start acknowledging things that you don't believe, yeah? this is what Peter's going through. This is what we go through. 
And thirdly, the community one. Because he was a leader, and I can understand why Paul would criticise him publicly. Why? Because Peter was the leader of the church. He was, he was like head honcho of the church worldwide. Yeah, now we're going we're gonna to fall short of calling him the Pope because he wasn't the Pope, but he was the head of the church worldwide. So his influence was massive. So by him withdrawing, it was no wonder that other Jews followed him. It was no wonder that Barnabas felt the pressure. There was this community response. When leaders make wrong decisions, people often go with them. So there's this community one. And not only that, not only did people go with him, but actually it forced the Gentiles to consider things that they weren't, that they, up to that point they weren't considering. They hadn't thought about what do we need to do to be part of the community here? Oh, man, we need to obey some food laws. We need to get circumcised. We need to start obeying the Sabbath. We need to do all these regulations. They weren't thinking that at all until Peter withdraws and suddenly they're thinking, oh, what do I need to do to be part of the community here? And that's a question that people will ask the church today. What do we need to do to be part of the community here? And the question for us is, are there rules and laws and regulations and subtle things that we have put in place to the way church runs that actually make it more difficult for people to join rather than easier for them to join? Have we, like the Jewish Christians in those days, um, actually, um, as I I said, the, the Christians in those days, the Jewish culture was in the church. It's proven, you can see it, it's in the church. Is the culture in the church? How much have we adopted bits of our culture? How much have we determined our own culture that actually keeps us separate, keeps us exclusive, preserves us till the final day? How much have we done that? Because that's the type of thing that this is challenging. That's the type of thing that we have to think. Why do we need to think about it even more now than ever before? Because the world is far more diverse than it was ever before. 30 years ago, it just didn't matter so much. I went to a church that was, was predominantly white from the age of about, well, from the age I was two. But it didn't matter so much. We just fitted in. Then the world began to change. People began to travel. Cities like London became more and more diverse. And then it became much more difficult to just go, oh, it's just our people. It's much more difficult to do that these days because the world has so moved away. And so it challenges the church. It shines a light on the fact that some things in church are cultural and we thought they were biblical, but actually they're not. They're just part of our culture. That's just the way we do it. And that's what is happening here. The the Jews probably thought circumcision and food laws, well, that's all part of being Jewish. It's all part of being Christian. It's interchangeable. Suddenly, when the Gentiles start getting saved, they realize, oh, it's not like that. Do we force them to join us? Or do we remove the hurdles? And we go, do you know what? It comes through faith in Christ. That was a massive journey for the Jew because it completely knocked their identity. Their identity in the exclusiveness of being the people of God, which they could see through their circumcision, through their food laws, through their regulation. This is what distinguishes us. And suddenly, no, no, those things don't distinguish you from anyone. The only thing that distinguishes you is faith alone in Christ. That's a massive shift. And that was the shift that they had to take. It then says, just a few couple of verses later in Galatians 2, verse 15, it says this. Paul, uh, Paul carrying on his argument. We 
who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, know, we know, that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because observing the law, no one will be justified. To us, it's, it's like a statement. I think, oh, hallelujah, yeah, I'm justified by faith. But for a Jewish person, that's massive. We too have put our faith in this. And so it comes back to this moment. It comes back to the fact that Jesus died on a cross in order that these groups of people might be brought together and that there might be peace between them. And the most practical expression of that was around a table, the food, the coming together. So how does the table help quickly? It's, a, it's the practical outworking of Ephesians 2, I've said that. Secondly, it's the means to build relationships that brings understanding and it enables you to extend grace. It's the means to build relationships that bring understanding that enables you to extend grace. Because this is how we live. Yeah? We live among people and we're with different people, but normally we gravitate to people like ourselves. And then what we do is we see another group of people and they do things that we, we think, oh, that's a bit strange. Maybe they stand on their head at breakfast or something. You think, oh, that's a bit weird. You know, when I see them at the when I see them at the bus stop, they're always like carrying umbrellas up. Why do they do that? Yeah. And what we do is very few of us ever go up to somebody and go, why do you do that? Why do you stand with umbrellas? I don't, I don't understand. Why do you do that? What we do is we go, I don't know. We say to people who we know, I don't know why they do that. Maybe, I don't know why they do it. Yeah, I've seen them do that. I don't know why they do that. Oh, it must be because. And we answer the question ourselves. We don't ask anyone. We just answer the question. Oh, it must be because, of, oh, yeah, that's right. It must be because, oh, do you know those people, they do that because of, you've never actually engaged with them. You've just answered all the questions yourself. You've come over here. You've talked about it. And then you've said, oh, that must be why. Oh, I, I don't want to do that. Oh, I don't want to hang around with those people because those people do this. They hold umbrellas up here. It seems really bizarre. And so that's often how we do it. So why, why table fellowship? Table fellowship, doesn't, it doesn't mean that people over here become your best friend necessarily, but it means you can build sufficient relationship with people so that you understand. Because, you know, understanding is everything. Oh, I know why they do that now. It's because he likes to put... I don't know what the reason... I have no idea why you would hold an umbrella up in, in the sky. But, but when you understand, you're like, oh, okay. And when you understand, it's much easier then to extend grace to somebody. To, to, and, and extending grace means that you accept them for who they are and you don't judge them for what they do. Yeah? You can't do that to people you don't understand. You just can't help judge. Oh, that must be, oh, I think we're right. I don't think that's a God thing. I think that we, the way we do it is right. So the table fellowship enables you to get to that place of understanding. Yeah? Understanding so that you can extend grace. And why do you want to extend grace? Because Jesus extended grace to you. He extended grace to me. Whilst I was still a sinner, Christ died. He died for the ungodly. Yeah? I was accepted before I ever turned. Yeah? He accepted you before you ever turned to him. So that when you turned, it's almost like he's already there. We need to learn to extend grace to others. 
accept them before they turn. And the third reason that the table helps is it's a constant reminder for us to overcome the idol of our cultures. Because our cultures are idols. They are places we put our identity in. They're places that we're proud about. But actually, idols, that's not what we worship. And the only way you recognize that, um, that, your, that your culture is your idol, really, is when you see someone else who's not part of your culture. That's exactly what happened to the Jews here. It was only when the Gentiles came along that they had any idea that these things were not part of the gospel. They did not know that before. It was only in the light of relationships with people who were not like them that they understood for the first time, oh man, there's this big question over, have you heard the big debate? Circumcision, you don't need to be circumcised to be Christian. Really? I didn't know that. What makes you say that? Well, look, all these people, they've been filled with the Holy Spirit and none of them have ever been circumcised. How did that happen? How can that be? You wouldn't have known it apart from the fact that they, you touched other cultures. And that is quite humbling if you recognize, actually, the only way I get a complete picture of God and how it works with him is in relationship with other cultures. That's quite a humbling thing. It's as difficult for the Jews to, to recognize my identity is no longer in all these laws, but it's in Christ alone. It's actually quite humbling for us to do. Why might we withdraw quickly? We might withdraw from table fellowship because we don't understand its significance. We are afraid of people and it feels like hard work. So you must understand its significance. So what's our response this morning? We're going we're gonna to sing a response. Becky, do you want to come up the band? Because we're going to uh, finish in a moment. But I think there are three ways that we can respond. First of all, there's the corporate response that we can just thank God for his provision of the cross because the truth is all of us are Gentiles. I don't think there's anyone here who's born an Orthodox Jew. You know, I can trace my heritage back to Abraham. I've got the certificates. No, none of us can do that. So we are Gentiles who have come into this relationship. Why? Because of faith in Christ. It's the only thing that brings us. It's the only thing that means that we can come. Second response we can make, and so we can thank God for that, and we're going to do that in a moment through worship. The second response we can make, a bit more of a challenge, practice table fellowship. Practice it. And, and it doesn't exclusively need to be, oh, how many different nations have I got around my table today? Oh, no, we all, it doesn't need to be like that. But, but practice this whole idea of building a relationship with people sufficient so that you understand them. So that when, when things, you know, when you get the misunderstandings which often occur, you've got this whole bank of knowledge about that person that makes you go, oh, do you know what? I'm not worried about that. I know them a bit. They're not like that. So practice table fellowship because when you practice it, you're saying something about the gospel. And thirdly, I don't know whether there's anyone here who's not a Christian, but if you are not a Christian... If nothing else, you need to understand that to become a Christian is not to start coming to church. That's not what makes you a Christian. To become a Christian is to actually believe that if I come to Jesus, I can, through that process, have my sins forgiven. I can repent. I can turn. That Jesus is the only hope for the world. And he's the only hope for your life. It's through him 
It's not through the laws. It's not through the rules. It's not how good you can be. If it was all about goodness and stuff, do you know what? I'd, I'd, be, I'd be a rubbish Christian. If it was all about how good I could be, it's nothing about that. It's about him. So we're going to respond together in worship, but I hope also that you'll respond in your lives as well.